This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. It's one of the most brutal unsolved mysteries in Hollywood that particularly is uh, intriguing to Elvis Presley fans that nobody really realizes was actually solved 40 years ago. And the truth has been sitting in a police file in the Los Angeles Police Headquarters ever since then. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Buddy Morehouse, and I am a journalist, documentary filmmaker, and author. When you're telling somebody what this book is about, what are the themes? What would you say? One of the victims, Jenny Maxwell, was my mom's first cousin. And the reason I decided to look into it, it was my mom was in really poor health a couple years ago. And I was kind of looking for some sort of closure for her benefit because she had gone her whole life not knowing what had happened to her cousin who was responsible for the murder. And when I first looked into it, I had no clue that the police had actually solved it. I was kind of hoping to maybe get enough information that would convince the police to reopen the case. Jenny's life story itself is tragic. It's a story about a girl who got too famous too quickly and didn't know how to handle it back then and then made a lot of very poor choices in her life that ended up leading to her destruction. And then it's a story also, I think, about family, her family, our family, and how we were finally able, in my mind, how I was finally able to get closure for my mom as to what happened and let her know before she passed away. I wonder, what age did your mom and Jenny start to cross paths? How old were each of them? My mom was six years older than Jenny, but Jenny lived in New York and my mom lived just outside Chicago. And when they were kids, every summer, my mom used to take the train from Chicago out to New York and she would babysit her for a couple of weeks. So it probably it's like when my mom was about, you know, maybe 12 or so and Jenny was five or six. And then they would do that every summer for for several years. That would have started sometime in the late 40s. How would your mom have described Jenny and the way that she grew up in that part of the family? They were very lower middle class. Her dad was a uh, skyscraper builder. He was one of those guys that went up on the big, you know, I-beams and built skyscrapers. Her mom, as far as I know, never worked. They lived in a really modest two-story brownstone in New York City, so they were not affluent at all. She was also an only child, which was rare in our big Norwegian family for Jenny to be an only child. And so her parents just totally doted just on her. The only cousin that Jenny was really close to was my mom. There were 11 brothers and sisters over in Norway. 
and three of them came over here. My grandfather was the oldest son in the family. He came over, and then Jenny's dad came over next. His name was Johnny. And then there was a younger brother, Harold, who came over. So the three brothers who came over here stayed in touch all the time. They were extremely close. Did your mom see things that sort of foreshadowed this rise to stardom with her? Did this girl have a great personality right from the get-go? You could tell that she had a magnetic personality, and and she had just striking features, too. She was extremely blonde and piercing eyes, so she was the kind of person that she was impossible to miss. But my mom also was heavy into theater and drama. So when they were kids and she would go out there, they would put on plays. And Jenny just idolized my mom. They would write a script, come up with costumes, and rehearse it, and then perform it for the neighborhood kids. She could tell early on that that was Jenny's love, and that she was also gifted and was kind of destined to do that. This seems like a very supportive, great, just working-class New York family. Extremely. Uncle Johnny, uh, Jenny's dad, and his wife, Annie, they did not want to leave New York. That was where their life was. So when Jenny went off to Hollywood, their only daughter at 16 years old, moving to Hollywood and everything, that was extremely difficult for them to to deal with. Her, her mom ended up spending a lot of time over there with Jenny, but they never thought about moving across country. So, you know, it kind of tore them apart to be apart that way, but they also knew that that was Jenny's destiny and that was her, her dream. So they weren't going to stand in the way of it. How does that happen, though? How do you go from working class kid in New York to wanting to go to Hollywood? How are you able to do that at age 16? Yeah, Jenny was literally discovered the the way that you, you know, read about the way that Lana Turner was discovered drinking a soda at whatever that soda shop was in L.A. Jenny was literally discovered in an acting class by Vincenta Minnelli, Liza Minnelli's dad, who was there just visiting a friend. And he was just getting ready to start shooting this Frank Sinatra movie. And he was looking for someone to play Frank Sinatra's niece in the movie. And he saw Jenny on stage and he was just he was just blown away and he flew her out to LA for a green test for that and then she never left. So I don't think Jenny had any, you know, grand plans about how she was going to become famous. It just kind of they they found her. Hollywood found her and pulled her out. Her parents had to have been nervous about all this. Oh yeah. They absolutely were extremely nervous. Her her mom went out and lived with her for the first few months and then would go back and forth a lot. For several years, she did the same thing. She went back and forth, and then Johnny, her dad, would go out when he could. As a father myself, I just cannot imagine what that would have been like to have to say goodbye to your daughter so she can go to L.A. to pursue her dreams at that age. And, And as it turned out, Jenny was not ready for it. So you've got a teenager coming from New York, from protective parents, into Hollywood in the 50s. What was life like for her? I understand she's got an agent and she's auditioning, but is she essentially on her own when she's there? She had an agent named Lillian Small. Not only just a great agent, but a maternal figure for Jenny when she was out there and did an excellent job of looking after her. Jenny still managed to make a lot of poor choices and everything, but Lillian was kind of more than an agent. What in the 50s would be offered to a young woman in her late teens? Is this lots of alcohol and drugs? What is she kind of up against? As soon as she got out there, she met somebody and got married. She eloped when she was 17 years old. Wow. She married an assistant director named Paul Rapp, who was kind of part of a family that was almost Hollywood royalty. Paul Rapp's dad was a guy named Philip Rapp, who was a creator of The Bickersons, a very famous radio show that later became a TV show. He was the writer for Bob Hope. He was best friends with the Marx Brothers. So the Rapp family was very famous in Hollywood at the time. 
And Jenny hooked up with Paul Rapp and got married when she was 17 years old. And then she had a child when she was 19 years old. Why do you think she went that way? If she's there trying to to be a Hollywood star, why get married at such a young age? Was it security, you think? I'm sure it was that she was just had fallen totally in love with Hollywood, with that lifestyle. And then this this man who was and and Paul Rapp was about uh, four years older than she was came into her life and you know fell in love with her and told her that he would give her all of everything she ever wanted and and I think she just kind of was yeah maybe looking for that security but also it was just in her mind furthering the Hollywood lifestyle to have a husband now who's he's a Hollywood insider as well what was the reaction of her family you know her parents to to being married to this man and having a child so young the part about getting married was devastating to them because she ran off and eloped she went to, back then, the place that everybody in California went to elope was Yuma, Arizona, which was kind of like the Las Vegas of the day in terms of there being all these wedding chapels and no waiting period. You can get a license the same day and get married the same day. So everybody in Southern California was going to Yuma, Arizona to elope. And that's what Jenny and Paul did. They didn't tell her family. They didn't tell his family. That was absolutely devastating to my great uncle Johnny, particularly that he didn't have a chance to give his daughter away at a wedding. And, you know, he did, they'd had all these visions of getting married in the Lutheran church as all Norwegians did. And it was, uh, it was a lot to deal with and take in. When, when Brian was born, her son, it was sort of the same thing, but you know, they also knew that they were going to be loving and supportive grandparents to him. They were just not at all ready for the decisions that Jenny was making. What is Paul like? What kind of husband is he and father? They had a terrible relationship. He was a good father to Brian, very good father. But they had a terrible, terrible marriage and relationship. They fought constantly. They had affairs on each other. When Brian was about two years old, they ended up getting a divorce. And that was really messy as well. The custody was messy and and it stayed that way for a number of years. Was she able to afford, you know, an attorney compared to what he was able to afford? Or how did the finances work between them? Jane was making good money on her own because she was in all these TV shows and movies. And she wasn't hurting for money herself back then. So she was definitely able to afford an attorney. When they first got divorced in 1962, Jenny got custody of Brian. She also won child support of a couple hundred dollars a month. And Jenny originally got custody of Brian at that time because it was very rare. It was almost unheard of in those days in California for the father to get custody or even to have anything close to equal visitation. So Jenny got custody of Brian originally, but she was neglectful. She would have men over all the time. She was doing drugs in the house. Paul took her back to court in 1963, and he ended up winning custody of Brian at that time. And Jenny only got some occasional visitation. And it was one of the first times in California history that the father got custody of a child. So in 1963, Brian went from living with Jenny to living with Paul. So I know I keep going back to this, but she is being brought up in New York by a very loving family, great parents. And just a few years later, she's in a horrible marriage. She's not a very good mother, it sounds like. Is this Hollywood or is this the result of making a poor choice in a husband? I think it's because she was not prepared for becoming such a big star at such a young age. And and it didn't, any nothing happened gradually to her. And as loving as her family was and as much support as she had from them, she was very strong-willed 
and just wasn't going to listen to anyone tell her anything. And when the, the allure of that Hollywood lifestyle comes along, it just overtook her after that. She was totally in love with the parties and the, the affairs and the drugs. and Attention. Exactly, the attention. And she was just absolutely stunningly beautiful. That also put a huge strain on her marriage with Paul because every time she would go out in public, people would be asking her autograph or autograph and showering attention. And so for a, somebody who's even mildly jealous, he Paul couldn't come close to handling that. Did you get the impression that he was abusive? It sounds like they were probably both verbally abusive to each other, but no idea that this any of this turned violent? Nothing at all. I, nothing we'd ever heard of and nothing that I'd ever in my research that I ever found out that he was physically abusive to either her or certainly not to Brian. Lots of loud fights, I'm assuming. Maybe some visits from the police. Yes. There's no question the police got involved. Okay. Tell me about her work schedule. What is that like? Maybe leading up to Blue Hawaii, which was, it sounds like the really big thing that people know her for. Jenny had always wanted to become a film star. And even after Blue Hawaii, that was her kind of her dream. Because when you're a film star, then you're making maybe, you know, three or four films a year. You're on location for a month or two at a time. It's it's a lot steadier and it's a lot more stable. When you're doing mostly TV shows at that time, it's a lot of boom, boom, boom. These are especially shoes mostly in sitcoms back then. So they're all filming everything in, in one week time. So you get there on Monday and Tuesday and you rehearse and you shoot on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then you move on to the next thing. But very long hours when you're in the middle of shooting something. You said she was in a lot of comedy. So was she naturally funny or was there a particular type of character she played? She specialized in playing a couple of different types of characters. One of them was the bratty girl who just moved to town and is trying to steal away the boyfriend of whoever the heroine of the show was at that time. So she had a lot of roles like that, kind of like a vixen character. And then she also would also play a lot of characters where she would had kind of like a, a sweet nature to her. And, and she had several characters where she played kind of like a farm girl who was a little more naive, just the cute blonde farm girl that you would see in a lot of shows, who would, the country girl who would pop up in a lot of those kinds of things as well. The character that she played in Blue Hawaii was the first one. She was this brat named Ellie Corbett who is making life miserable for Elvis Presley. <laughs> so tell me about that break. How does she make the jump from a couple of TV series to something like Blue Hawaii with, I would presume, the biggest star at the time, Elvis Presley? So Jenny had been in uh, 15 or so TV shows leading up to March of 1961, which is when Blue Hawaii filmed out in, in Hawaii. She'd been on the radar screen of all the Hollywood casting directors at that time. She had just come off doing an episode of The Twilight Zone that got a lot of attention, and she got really good reviews for that. And the director was a guy named Norman Torog of Blue Hawaii, and he was looking for exactly the kind of a character that Jenny specialized in playing for this. If you see the film Blue Hawaii, there's Elvis and his love interest in the movie are the, the two main characters. And then really Jenny's character was the other most important one and probably the most memorable one in the film. So the plot of Blue Hawaii is that Elvis Presley has just gotten out of the uh, military. His family was this rich family in Hawaii who owned a pineapple plantation. And he was coming back to kind of run the pineapple plantation, which he didn't really want it to do. He wanted to be a Hawaiian tour guide where people would come to the islands and he would show them around. So that's the job that he was doing when the movie starts. And Jenny and this other group of girls show up and they are college-age girls who are on a tour of Hawaii. And Elvis is in charge of showing them a good time. And there's, I think, five or six girls in this group. And they're all nice and normal. And Jenny is just this brat who is whiny and complainy and 
is just trying to make life absolutely miserable for Elvis. And then, of course, she ends up trying to seduce Elvis, and then Elvis has to put her in her place. So it's coming off some of the TV things that she did, particularly the Twilight Zone that got the attention of the director. She screen tested with Elvis, and it was just absolutely magic at that time, and that's when they offered her the part. Did you get any idea or any sense about what their relationship was like, their working relationship between Jenny and Elvis? Apparently, they got along absolutely great. So this was uh, right after Brian was born. He was born in June of 1960, and they filmed this movie in March of 1961. So Brian was only like nine months old at the time. And Jenny had convinced Paramount Pictures to fly Paul and Brian out to Hawaii with her to let them stay with her when they when they filmed this. At that time, they were still trying to keep their marriage together and, you know, the, hey, we have a young son here. We don't need to be getting a divorce. So they thought maybe this trip to uh, Hawaii was going to be a good thing for their family. And one of the great stories that I heard is that Elvis would throw these big parties every night at the Cocoa Palms Resort which is where the movie was filmed. These huge parties he would have every single night. And apparently the the last night of uh, filming, after everything wrapped up, they had the biggest party of all. And they were all down there. And that's where Brian, who was nine months old, that's where he took his very first steps, was at this huge party with Elvis Presley watching him. So you talk about life experiences, then that you can't get much cooler than that. So the biggest movie she's ever done and in the worst time of her life. It was pretty much the worst time of her life, yeah. It career-wise had a lot of great things happen to her right after that, but her personal life was just kept going downhill after that and just kept getting worse and worse and worse. But in terms of her career, she was on top of the world. She and Paul enter into this custody battle. Is she continuing to work while she's doing the drugs and doing the partying and fighting for custody and then losing custody? Is she consistently working? She is. Her career kept going on kind of an upward trajectory after Blue Hawaii. She got a couple more really good TV roles. She was in another big movie called Take Her, She's Mine with Jimmy Stewart and Sandra Dee. She was hoping to do even more movies after that, but she did have a huge movie after that with the the Jimmy Stewart movie. Coming into about 1965 or so, she had lost custody of Brian. All of the drinking and drugs and everything had really started to get to her. And at that point, her career really started to go downhill for a few years. It was 1966 or 67 when she only had one TV appearance. It was a really small part in Death Valley Days, which was actually narrated by Ronald Reagan. But that was the only part that she had that movie. So her her career and her life were both kind of spiraling downhill. She's only like 25, 26 years old. And she had already done that much living in her life. And you think the big trigger for this was losing custody of Brian? I think that that was just kind of symptomatic of everything that had happened to her. It was kind of inevitable that something like that was going to happen. And it wasn't until 1968 that she finally realized that she needed to do something different in her life, that she needed change. She made the decision in 1968 that it was not going to be possible for her to be both a good mother and a star. She just couldn't do both of them. So she made the choice in 1968 that she was going to quit Hollywood altogether in an effort to try to win her son back. She was able to get partial custody of Brian back at that point, and she never acted again. Her entire Hollywood career lasted just 10 years, from the age of 16 to the age of 26. That was her entire Hollywood career.
So now she's a actress that has effectively retired herself. And how does she support herself more than just Paul's money that she receives for child support, I assume? What does she do for work? Jenny did not want to get a regular job. In 1968, she quit show business. And in 1970, she married this rich Hollywood divorce attorney who was 20 years older than her named Irvin Tip Raider. And Tip was a former cop. He was somebody who uh, didn't become a lawyer until he was 40 years old, but he became a really famous, really good lawyer really quickly. And he was obsessed with Hollywood. He represented a lot of Hollywood people in divorce cases, had some affairs with some Hollywood starlets, and he really wanted a Hollywood wife. He wanted some arm candy. So he has an interesting character, Tip. Let's talk about the mobbed up part of him. Tip was a fascinating guy. He was born in Iowa, grew up in Iowa. Went into the military when he was just out of high school, and he was stationed out in California. And when he got out of the military, he decided he wanted to stay in California and become a cop. So he moved on to Southern California. He got a job with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. He was a big, menacing-looking, annoying, obnoxious guy. He was loud and abrasive. Most of the people who knew Tip back then could not stand him. He was the kind of a person who would needle you and and just not a very fun, friendly person to be around, but a huge, enormous personality, which really lent itself well to him being an attorney. He was a cop for like 20 years, almost 20 years or so. And, and then when he went to law school and became a lawyer, he still had a lot of those connections that he'd made back when he was a cop. He knew all the bad guys in Los Angeles and in that area there, and, and they knew him as well. So there was a restaurant called Red Tract and Steakhouse that Tip used to hang out at all the time. And it's kind of like that restaurant at the beginning of Goodfellas where they're walking through and, and he's explaining who all the mobster guys in there. That, that was basically Red Tracton's steakhouse at the time. And that's where Tip hung out all the time, got to know Red Tracton really, really well. So this does not sound like the making of a good marriage. It was terrible. Worse than her marriage with Paul? Probably in a, in a, in a lot of the same ways and in, in a little bit in a different way, too. Jenny did not do a very good job at picking husbands. There's no question about that. They fought all the time from the time they got married. Tip was extremely jealous of Jenny. And even though she wasn't in Hollywood anymore, she was still recognized all the time, particularly for Blue Hawaii, because that was on TV all the time. So anytime Jenny would go out, people would recognize her. Tip would get very jealous about that. They argued, fought all the time. He kicked her out of the house several times. She threatened to leave him several times. And then they started having affairs on each other as well. And Jenny had threatened several times to divorce Tip. But the thing that, that it kept coming back to in her mind is that the way the law worked in California back then, in order to be entitled to anything that your spouse has, you have to be married at least 10 years. Wow. If you get divorced before that, then he would have get basically gotten to, to take everything. If she made it to 10 years, then she'd be entitled to half of everything that Tip had. So in her mind, as many times as she threatened to leave him and divorce him, in her mind, she started thinking, you know what, I got married in 1970, I just need to make it to 1980, and then I can divorce him and I'll get half his money. And he was worth millions at that time. What is life like for Brian, her son? That's one of the, the actually uh, good parts of the story. When Jenny quit Hollywood in 1968 to kind of repair her relationship with Brian, in the, in the early 60s, they barely knew each other. Brian only saw his mom every a couple times a month or so. But in the late 60s and then into the early 70s, they started having a great relationship. And Jenny became a genuinely good mom to Brian. They were more, I would say, more friends than they were mother-son. 
Um, you know, they would drink wine together. And But Jenny was, in her own way, the best mother that she could be to Brian at that time. So by the time he was in high school, he just adored his mother. By that time, Jenny's mom had passed away. Jenny's mom died in 1970. But her dad, Johnny, he would come out to L.A. all the time to visit with them. Jenny had these three men in her life. She had Tip, her husband, Brian, her son, and Johnny, her father. She couldn't stand one of them, her husband, but she adored the other two. And they would spend all this time together. And those were the best times in her life. Do you think there were tensions between Tip and Brian or Tip and Johnny, her father? Nobody liked Tip. Brian was scared to death of him. The only thing that they could find in common to talk about was fishing. Tip and Johnny just kind of tolerated each other. And they were about the same age, too, which is kind of strange. Have have, (laughs) have your dad and your husband be the same age. What about your mom? Did your mom see Jenny after the days of babysitting this little girl in a small apartment in New York? Jenny really lost touch with all of her family, aside from her dad and her mom, when she moved to Hollywood. And it wasn't anything malicious. It wasn't like she was intentionally trying to cut out people in her life. But she and my mom would write letters to each other, you know, every year or so, uh, just to kind of keep in touch. And, And they sent Christmas cards to each other. But I don't think my mom ever saw Jenny again after she had gone to Hollywood and become a star. So her relationship with Tip is deteriorating, and she's determined to make it to 1980, which is the 10-year mark, and either hoping, I'm presuming, that this will get better somehow. And I don't even think she was thinking it would, or even hoping that it would get better. She could not stand Tip. She couldn't wait to be divorced from him. They had a lot of affairs on each other, and the affairs that Tip had were more like long-term ones, he would, you know, have an affair with someone for six months or a year. Or It's more deceit. Exactly. And Jenny's were more one-night stands, and they were mostly to hurt Tip because she hated him that much. The people that she was having these one-night stands with a lot of time were like his friends hmm. and people that Tip knew really well. You, you cannot imagine a more toxic relationship and marriage than they had. That, that's what they were living in. Why did he not divorce her if he was miserable too? I think that he thought that he was getting too old to get another Hollywood arm candy wife, and he still wanted her around for that reason. We are approaching 1980. Reagan's in the White House. Set the scene for what is coming up over the next 12 months for Jenny. Where is she at this time? They're in Hollywood. They're in Beverly Hills. They lived in Beverly Hills. Her relationship with her son is fantastic. Brian is, you know, 19 years old, 20 years old. They see each other all the time. They just love going out and getting sushi with each other and staying up all night talking about philosophy and politics and religion and life and everything else. Jenny cannot stand her husband at that time. And finally, in early 1981, she finally got up the guts to divorce Tip. So she filed for divorce. She moved out and she got her own place on Holt Avenue, South Holt Avenue in Beverly Hills. She is how old and he is how old at this point? Jenny was 39 and Tip was 59. Okay, so separate places at this point. Are they in contact at all? Is there a reason for them to be in contact? They were in contact, and that's the reason that they were both together on the day of the murder. I think Jenny was actively moving toward the divorce. Jenny had gone into the hospital. She was going to go in and have this procedure done. She went in there on June 9th, and she was going to be getting out of the hospital on June 10th. And she had called a friend and said, can you come pick me up at the hospital? And a friend said, sure. She was going to pick her up and bring her home. 
And the morning of the 10th, she called her friend and said, oh, you don't have to worry about it. Tip said he's going to be around. He's going to pick me up and take me home. Tip picked her up from the hospital. They stopped and they got something to eat. And then when they were going into her condo on South Holt Avenue in Beverly Hills, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon on June 10th, 1981. Somebody came up and shot them. They shot Jenny twice in the head and they shot Tip once in the stomach. The first person who heard the screaming, they heard Tip screaming, was this guy working in a grocery store about a block away. And he heard somebody just screaming, help, help, help. And he came over and he saw Tip had had crawled out to the sidewalk out there and was bleeding profusely. Uh, And he kind of collapsed on the sidewalk. At that point by then, the police had shown up. The only newspaper that did a story on this was the Los Angeles Times. They sent a reporter out to the scene. They did a story on it. And the cop who was on the scene at that time, of course, the first question you ask is, do you know what the motive was? Do you know what the reason for this this crime was? At the time, they said, it looks like it was a botched robbery. It looked like somebody was holding them up on the sidewalk. They walked them into the lobby, and then something probably went wrong at that point. We know who this guy is, Tip Raider. He's a former cop. He probably tried to do something and, and tried to stop the guy or whatever, and then ended up getting both of them shot. When they did the story the next day in the L.A. Times, that's how it was reported, that this was a botched robbery. The other really fascinating thing, I think, about that story is that it identified Tip in there as being a well-known Hollywood attorney and talked about some of the cases that he had done. But for Jenny, it only identified her as Jennifer Rader, his wife. Oh, wow. Whoever did that story had absolutely no idea who she really was. That just 20 years earlier, she was probably the most famous actress in Hollywood at that time. Now, this is long before you could look something up on the internet. You couldn't Google and find out. But they didn't bother to find out that she was actually much more famous than he was. But if you look at the story from that time, it only mentions Tip in there. She, She was in the headline is the word wife. And it shows how far off the scene she really was at her death. Okay, so they have died. And besides this column, what is the reaction just in general? Did everybody accept that this was a botched robbery? My mom got a phone call on June 11th from Venki, her cousin over in Norway, who said, oh my God, Jenny was murdered yesterday in in Los Angeles. She goes, what? He goes, yes, she was murdered. And we didn't know anything about Tip. We knew she was married to this guy who was an attorney out there probably had some mob connections, but we had no idea. And I said, well, let me see what I can find out. At that time, I was going into my senior year at the University of Michigan, and I was a sports reporter for the newspaper, the student newspaper, the Michigan Daily. I was the closest thing that our family had to anyone who was a journalist, even though I'm a (laughs) college sports writer. I did think to myself, I at least knew enough to say, probably the newspaper in Los Angeles did a story about it. Maybe I can find something out there went to the Michigan Daily offices and I called out to the LA Times out there and I told them what I was looking for and who I was. I'm saying, I'm just wondering if you can tell me if you guys did a story on that. She read me the story over the phone and that's the story that said that this was a most likely a botched robbery and those are the only details in there. So from that point on, for the next 38 years of all of our lives, that's what we thought happened. As far as Jenny's fans knew and anyone else in the world knew that it was a botched robbery. What was happening with your mother that brought all this up? She was in just in really poor health. This was in 
early 2019, late 2018, early 2019. My mom's health had been kind of going downhill for a while. You know, she would talk about Jenny every every so often, and I would come across like another TV show that she was in, and I'd find it on YouTube and send it to my mom, and she would just love to see that. This wasn't like anything we talked about all the time, but I also knew that this was always in her heart that she had this kind of nagging issue that she was never able to get any closure as to what happened with Jenny. It just struck me. I said, you know what? I want to see if I can try to find find out whatever happened with Jenny. And then I just started hunting around on the internet. And I finally came across this one website. I think it's called Find a Grave. Oh, yeah. People are able to leave like little flowers and messages for someone when they pass away. I use that side often. You can find so many people that way. You can find the children of people who are deceased. And it's been interesting. Yeah, the thing that was really helpful for me is that people would leave comments on there, particularly on Jenny's birthday. 99% of them are Blue Hawaii fans just, you know, praying for you today. And there's this one person who left a message on there and she... Uh, made it clear for the message on there that she knew Jenny and that she was her friend. So I was able to track this woman down. She didn't know what happened to Jenny, but she was able to give me a whole lot of information about what Jenny's life was like in the 70s and who she hung around with and what she did. And she's the one who told me a lot about how horrible Jenny's marriage was to Tip. That filled in a lot of the blanks that we'd never heard before. I got a hold of the, the guy who was the cop who was on the scene that very first day. It was a guy named John Dial, and he was the one who was quoted in the article as saying, it looks like it was a botched robbery. He didn't know what happened either, but he was able to fill in a lot more of the information about what the murder scene was like. And so he said, you're going to want to call the Wilshire Division Detective Bureau because they're the ones that would have handled this at the time. Maybe there's somebody there who can find the file, who can tell you what happened. But this is almost 40 years ago, right? At this point, when you're investigating this. Yeah, it's 2019, and, and the murder was in, you know, 1981, so it's 38 years. So you're being a detective. <laughs> I was a detective. Anyway, it was such a rush every time I'd come up with a new bit of information. Every time after I would talk to someone, then I'd immediately call my mom and tell her what I heard. Aww. <laughs> so he told me to call the Wilshire Division uh, Detective Bureau, so I did that. The guy who answered the phone was this detective who was in his early 30s, so he wasn't even alive when this happened. I told him about the case, and he said, I've never heard this before. This sounds really interesting. He said, well, let me see what I can find out. Call me back a couple days later. And he said that he had spent an entire day. They had, a, they had a room in there that had all these boxes of files. And these are files that had not yet been digitized. And they went back all the way, you know, before 1981. But he said, I started looking through these boxes. And he goes, and I found a file that had a sticker on there that had the names of the two cops who were the detectives who investigated the case. It said Thies and Rogers. Mm -hmm. Rogers was a guy named Jerry Rogers. And he died in the uh, late 80s of a heart attack. But Thies was a guy named Mike Thies. And he's still around. I emailed him, told him who I was and what I was looking for. So the next day, Mike Thies called me, said, we actually solved that case like 10 days after it happened. I know exactly what What? happened. He told me everything that had happened. I called my mom. I was able to tell her. And it was about two weeks after that that my mom passed away. Oh, gosh. Well, tell me the story. What happened? He was looking all over the murder scene to find out what had happened. They looked for the murder weapon. They couldn't find that anywhere. They were just to kind of remind you what happened at the, the day of the murder. So Jenny was shot at the scene. She was shot twice in the head. In the lobby, right? In the lobby, correct. And Tip was shot once in the stomach. And then he died about two and a half hours later. Very painful. 
Oh, I can't imagine. But he also said that nothing was taken there. Jenny had her purse and there was a lot of money in there. She had a few, she had jewelry on and nothing was taken. So he said this whole idea of it being a botched robbery was false. We knew that right away. That seems risky. That seems really risky to me for some reason. It just seems public to me. It's the other thing he told me, too, is he said if if someone's going to rob someone, number one, they're not going to do it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of Beverly Hills. He said, number two, they're not going to rob a couple. They're usually going to find a single female. They're not going to rob somebody who has a big, burly guy. Yeah. It's not an easy target. None of this is easy. Then they started interviewing some of Tips and and Jenny's friends. They found out about how toxic their relationship was. And the first big break for them came when they ran the registration of the car that Tip was driving that he picked Jenny up in. They found that the car was registered to Red Tracton who owned the restaurant that I was talking about earlier where all the mob guys hung out. So for whatever reason, Tip was driving a car that was not his car, but it was registered to Red Tracton. And so Mike Thies said, so we went out in Encino. We sat next to Red Tracton's pool and interviewed him. And he told us that, yeah, Tip had uh, been doing a lot of work for him and he didn't want any money. But he said, I, I want you to give me a car. He goes, and I don't know why he wanted me to give him a car, but I had, I had several cars and I, I think it was a big Lincoln Continental. Mike Thies now is going, okay, so there's something going on here with the car Tip is driving. So then they looked in the in the, in the trunk of the car and they found there were four guns in there. And in addition to the four guns, there were these boxes of ammo. It was this really, really rare ammunition that was made in Indiana and had been off the market for about 10 years. And when they ran the ballistics on the bullets that killed Jenny and that shot Tip, they found that it was the exact ammo that Tip had in his trunk. So at this point, they're going, all right, it's obvious to us that, that Tip at least knew who the killer was, that either he had given the killer the ammo, Hmm. or that the guy had stolen the ammo. That's when they really cracked the case. They interviewed some people that they knew that knew Tip really well. The main person that they talked to was a private investigator that Tip had worked with a lot. This is a former cop named Danny Stewart, who Tip had represented in a case about 10 years earlier. And Danny told them that, yeah, about a month ago, Tip had come to me and asked me if I would do a job for him or if I knew somebody who would do a job for him. And it was clear to me that what he was asking me to do was to either kill Jenny or find someone to kill Jenny. He he was sick and tired of everything and, and he wanted to have Jenny out of his life, didn't want her to get any of his money, wanted to kill her and be done with it. Basically, the story that they heard from a couple other people that Tip tried to hire is that Tip wanted to find somebody who would kill Jenny and then wound him oh, gosh. to make it look like this was a botched robbery. It was supposed to just be a really tiny little yeah. flesh wound in the side of his stomach. This would give Tip an alibi then and he would be off the hook. He would just, you know, he'd be in pain for a few weeks, but at, then he would be free of Jenny and his life would be all set again. Boy, did he hire the wrong hitman, didn't he? He either hired the wrong hitman or he turned his stomach a little too much at the wrong time, but that's what was in this file that had been sitting in the LA police department for the last 40 years almost, that it was Tip Raider who essentially killed himself and killed Jenny Maxwell. Now, the one thing that we don't know is who he ended up hiring to do the job. Somebody connected to Red, wouldn't you think? Probably a hitman that he had met at Red Track Steakhouse. He said, you know, we could keep looking for this guy and, and we did. For a while after that, but we kind of realized that he'd hired a professional and this is somebody that's not going to make it easy to disappeared for you to find who they are. Right. That's the truth as to what happened to Jenny 
And wow. It was the tip rater was responsible for it. And the truth has been out there. So I asked Mike, did any reporter ever try to follow up with you? Or, yeah. He said, no. He goes, and it, I didn't really view it as my job to call the LA Times and say, hey, by the way, we solved that that crime. He wrote it all down, put it in the, the file, and it had been sitting there until I called him up and asked him about it. Your mom hears this information and you unspool all of this for her while she's sick. What is her reaction to, to what you're telling her? I think the overwhelming emotion that she felt was closure at that point, knowing that it wasn't something that Jenny was involved in or anything that Jenny had done wrong or that she was mixed up with drugs or anything like that and there was somebody coming to get her. The the, the thing that Jenny did wrong is she married a horrible man. So I think having that closure in her mind that because she just adored Jenny when they were kids and, and it was that to have that that kind of closure in her heart you know, before she went, I think was something that was really important to her. Well, and you're a good role model, too, for younger generations in your family to just show how important family is and communication and knowing your family history. I talk to my kids about that all the time, how important family history is and that connection that we have. And you were able to solve one of the big mysteries in your family. But I, I've been able to use this story with my own kids and, and telling them about somebody that we never, none of us ever met. I never met Jenny, but I feel so much closer to her now and even to my entire family that I've been able to immerse myself into this story and, and share that with all of them. On the next episode of Wicked Words. The stories that I would hear is Omar, his brother, would stop and eat a hot dog on a corpse. He would sit on the corpse and use it as a, oh as, a as a bench so that he could eat his lunch. They found it amusing to torture people and watch them die. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.